Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Hey everybody, you're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, and today Dan and I are really excited to share with you our first ever tech episode, which is like a new format that we're going to try out that will focus on smaller, more kind of granular technical details of production and science and um, some of the the inner workings of the world building that we love about Blade Runner so much. And uh, so hopefully we'll do a ton of these over the coming years, Um, and this is the first time we're going to kind of pilot this out, so we hope you enjoy it. Uh, And tonight we've chosen something very near and dear to, I think, every Blade Runner fan's hearts, um, and that is the iconic spinner. So, uh, so Dan, what are your thoughts on spinners just before we get into the real specific stuff? As a Blade Runner fan, what, what do they mean to you? Well, uh, I guess really the spinners connected to the fact that Blade Runner is one of the my first science fiction movies that I can really remember being connected to as a child, just due to my age. You know, I was born in 83, so I was born after the movie, and so it was one of the first ones I saw with my dad. So the spinner is just an example of that first kind of quintessential flying car idea that's been around for a long time. Um, but that was my first experience of the flying car, and so... Of course, being a child, not even driving a regular car, you just (laughs) mesmerized by seeing the dashboard and all the lights. And of course, these are police vehicles for the most part, uh, which is even cooler. And um, and of course, I think the level of um, the level of special effects that they were able to pull off in Blade Runner makes it so seamless that it almost looks like magic, you know? I think, you know, when you look at a modern airplane, even if you don't understand the physics, you can kind of, you know, they're loud and you can kind of see like, okay, there's a propeller in the front. Like that's obviously has something to do with it flying or a jet engine is super loud when you're up close to them. Um, Whereas these spinners have this just like, obviously they're loud too. They have their own sound effects, but it's kind of like mysterious and unclear how the physics of it function. Yeah, it's Um, actually, it's, it's funny you say that because we were watching 2049 tonight again. (laughs) <laughs> which is just sort of a nightly ritual at this point. I'm about and, to watch it here in like an hour, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and and Jude, our eldest son, who loves, loves spinners, he's four and a half, was like, Daddy, how does it work? And I was like, you know what? I have no idea how spinners actually function. Magic. Which is funny because I'm recording an episode on spinners in like 40 minutes, you know, from that point. Um, and we, and I, but it was, it's so true. It's like, it's a really mysterious thing. Although it's couched in technology that we see, like vertical takeoff and landing. You know, we yes. can we can think of a flying car as something tactile and, and real and doable. Um, and especially because the way that they world build in 2019 and 2049, it's, it's a very believable object. But you're right. There's something strange about it. There's something that kind of hard to hard to pin down about how it would actually function. And I think that's okay because part of what's beautiful about science fiction is you don't have to know all the answers to everything. But it's it's impossible not to wonder, you know. Yeah, definitely. And I think uh, both probably me and you as children, and certainly your uh, boys now, that aspect of sort of that 
magical thing that's in sci-fi that might drive an actual engineer crazy because they they might be like this is impossible this would never work like there's a reason why we don't have flying cars even right. in the 80s or whatever um whereas a little kid just accepts it and buys it and i guess um you know for the most part when i talk to people who unlike me are not able to really suspend disbelief to enjoy something it's kind of a shame because I, i've met people like that who like they don't enjoy fantasy or sci-fi because they're like eh, once there's more than one thing that's fantastical i just like lose my ability to suspend disbelief and it ruins the movie for me and i just right. like i feel so sorry for those people <laughs> i mean it's not their fault i'm just saying oh man i just totally just revert back to being an eight-year-old for the most part and oh, so i can suspend disbelief left and right and it's great you know <laughs> me too I remember um, when when we walked out of 2049 the first time. Um, when I was driving home, I like could not stop pretending that I was piloting a spinner the whole way. And I was like, <laughs> "This is exactly why I love these movies." Is it's like it just feels like it could be real. Like it feels like I could be actually at the controls of one of these things, you know. And especially in 2019, which we'll get more deeply into momentarily, I feel like it, it's just a, a completely believable proposition. And because it's not glorified, like it's not this sort of you know, beautiful, elegant, perfect thing. Like it's like a kind of a dirty, grungy, like real feeling object yeah. piloting this like really shitty kind of cityscape. Um, it feels like it's it feels like it's real. You know, it, it does not look like Steve Jobs designed it. Like it looks like an right. element of a future that like you don't really want to see come to fruition. Even though it's a fantastical and amazing feat of engineering. It's not like just this beautiful object. It is like a supremely utilitarian, like really gritty thing. Um, yeah. So along those I, lines, I, well, I, I know you, you've done you've done a little bit of background research um, on 2019's spinners. You want to talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, and and to to piggyback on your point, I was going to yeah. say that 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 aspect of uh, not just the spinners, but you know, we'll stick with spinners in this particular episode of being grimy and dirty and utilitarian, and it's like, uh, you know, especially the police vehicle, it's like, oh, this is the car Gaff is driving, but it might not even be his. You know what I mean? Like, it might yeah. just be. Uh, uh, LAPD spinner number 13 or whatever like other people use too and yeah they're dirty and, and all that aging of course was done on purpose so that things didn't look brand new and look like they were designed by Apple and I think right. um, again that was very deliberate by the production designers um, and you can see that in 2049 as well you know mm -hmm. after creating these vehicles which they have several different models they dirtied them up and make them look used the way really a real cop car would be or, or undercover car or whatever because right. um, it's, it's funny because like when you look at a cop car they're all i mean there's a reason why until very recently almost every single police vehicle was a ford crown victoria and the, right. the, the main reason for that well, i mean there were a few reasons for it, but one of them was that it was a body on frame vehicle so it was really easy to take apart and just replace whole parts because the chassis and the body were two completely independent things so like they could get junked all the time and you'd be like, hey, does anybody have, like, a spare quarter panel? Like, yeah, just, like, you know, just put it on there. Like, you know, like, does anybody have, like, like this this chassis is bent out of shape because it fell off a bridge? Like, can we just put the body on another chassis? So they would oh, be switching these things around. And that's why you could have these, you know, 1997 Crown Victorias running actual patrol duty in 2013. Because um, they basically were just, like, these, just, a set, these like, Frankenstein assemblages of 
different generations of parts that because they were so durably made and so inelegant but perfect for the application, they were like, you know, they were great, like basically held together with duct tape and, and balls. You know what I mean? Like these things were like, <laughs> were so rugged. And you see that, especially in 2019, I think, and, and the way the spinners are designed for that movie. It's just it's just like, you know, like you, you get the sense that these things have just been through a lot of shit and they're probably going to continue to be through a lot of shit because they're just being used all the time. Right, yeah, police chases and crashing into buildings at high altitude and f- probably then crashing to the ground. <laughs> I mean, that, I don't know that it would survive that. But yeah, certainly. Uh, and I think police vehicles and uh, things of that nature are designed or uh, are, are used by design, like you said, to be replaceable and to take a beating and continue right. to go because certainly that's part of their work. So right. yeah, and I think that there's just a, the people involved in the production of both movies, I think, have that gut sense and transfer it over into the movie. And so you can see it in the way they age things. You can see it in some of uh, Sid Mead's designs um, where they're really trying to make a connection to the real world, um, which of course, you know, uh, evolves into putting CRT tubes uh, in the actual dashboards. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, there's a little bit of detail there too. I was reading um, a lot of what I'll talk about in 2019 comes from Future Noir, but I've also kind of reviewed the film and zoomed in on things here and there. And Yeah, just um, a side note, Dan has like a, a spaceship for a television. So he's able <laughs> to like pause 4K video and zoom in esper style into like any detail that he wants to so yes i did just figure that out so for anybody out there who has a relatively new tv look into the zoom function because especially when watching high definition like 4k stuff it's pretty valuable you can read a lot of tiny writing and look into a lot of detail and so of course we're doing yeah so when you're a nerd and you're trying to really look at something in detail it's great and um, yeah, so you know, there, there's certain details you notice. So, for example, uh, the light that passes over. So, in Gaff and uh, Deckard's ride, after they pick him up in the noodle bar, and they ride to LAPD. During the ride, you can see light moving across their faces, kind of just as if you know the same way it would when you're going through several street lights. And uh, as you pass, the light changes as you're going under the street lamp and then away from the street lamp, etc. And uh, interestingly enough, they filmed that light um, without knowing exactly what backgrounds the spinner was going to be shown flying through later. So later on, when they (laughs) added all the models and all the lighting in the background, they had to make sure the lighting at least somewhat matched up believably so that it wouldn't throw you off to be like, wait, this is weird. Like, you know, the background is dark right now, but I see light going over their faces. So, you know, it's obviously not um, matched to perfection, but it's good enough that it doesn't pull you away from the movie at all. And actually, uh, I, I think part of what is so cool about those shots that you're talking about in particular is mm-hmm. that there's so much visual chaos going on because right. you're aware that the reflections aren't totally one for one, you know? Like, you're aware yeah. of, like, the stuff in the background, but also that the lights are just so complicated they are passing over the dome or the fuselage of the thing. And, right. Uh, and it, it creates this, like, really very visually dynamic tableau to me. Right, and not to mention they have glass floors where the driver mm. and the passenger sit um, you know, the idea being so that the pilot essentially has more visibility 
some helicopters are designed that way too. And so uh, you're getting light from underneath as well. So it's a lot of complex lighting. And of course, Blade Runner involves a lot of complex lighting all over the place and models. And right. yeah, I mean, when you go back and really pay attention to these scenes visually, there is so much going on. It's like, you just have to, even when you're not trying to do it for to write an episode, you're just like, wow, there's so much going on here. I have to That's rewind crazy. and pause constantly. Um, even the, 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 uh, the monitors that are in the spinners, they were gonna pump like VHS video feeds through those monitors to play, you know, the um, when it says purge at the beginning and stuff like that to match up with what the vehicle's actually doing. And they literally, they were, they were so cramped with stuff in there, they couldn't fit the video feed in. So they ended up having to use matte and uh, animation later to animate the monitors. Uh, so when the actors were actually in the spinners, those monitors weren't lit up because they were physically unable to pipe it in there, which is I interesting. I did not know that. Yeah, it's, it's all in future I would never have guessed that. Right. You can't tell. I mean, that's the yeah. thing. When they're using matte painting or animation or anything like that uh, in 2019, it's really difficult to tell, especially you these... know, it's Well, it's a, it's, a good, it's a good point because the refresh rate on a CRT monitor would have been detectable on the film camera oh, yeah. because, of, oh, because yeah. of the frame rate of the film camera. So you would have seen that. Um, and right. the fact that you – I always just figured they had like some amazing solution for that, but it's just because it was, literally wasn't being filmed. That's yeah, I don't think there's a solution. Old VHS uh, frame rate will always show up if you film it straight on with the camera. I'm pretty sure if someone – Someone knows more than us, they can call in and correct us. But, you know, and you'll see, <laughs> you see that line running across the screen over and over again. And I think you're yeah. right. That has to do with the refresh rate of VHSs. But right. so it's amazing the little tricks they used to get around uh, problems like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I, I'd like to just go back and talk about uh, just that scene from the noodle bar when they pick up and then eventually land at LAPD because there's several yeah. things going on there. And that, that's kind of the most up close you get to uh, a spinner, which, of course, you know, that was the one of the two full scale models that they built. Um, and then, you know, there's, of course, that great visual effect of when you see the up close kind of vertical takeoff. You know, they use um, steam or whatever they, they shot out, smoke out of the bottom to kind of simulate propulsion. And then that vehicle was actually uh, hooked up to a crane. And so they lifted it up and, you know, the crane's out of uh, camera shot. And then having the um, having the rain going on made it a lot easier to hide the wires. And so later right. they kind of, you know, they, they scrub the wires out later. And um, it's pretty phenomenal not having very minimal computers at the time. Uh, I'm really not sure, actually, exactly how you would go about erasing, um, you know, cables. Because those cables are holding up a, you know, pretty heavy vehicle. So... Um, but that right, it's, seamless... it's not like this. It's not like strings on a Godzilla costume or something. You, like right. these are like very serious load-bearing cables. Yeah. That are suspending it from an actual vehicle lifting crane. Yeah. Not um, to mention that if if something happens, like you're going to kill somebody. So it's like yeah, a, right. you know, it's so, I'm sure they had some pretty strength. serious redundancies built in. I mean, exactly. I mean, I, I I would imagine that back then they had the the digital capability to do that. But I think. Um, so. I think I don't so. Know. That's, I mean, that's but I know that the, I know. I remember reading that the rain definitely helped. That was part of one of the reasons, of course, aside from the plot, that it was always raining. Is it like helped <laughs> cover up effects like that? But again, I think we see that great mix that at the time in '81, when the movie was being filmed, was such that it didn't matter whether you were a great director or not, you had to use practical effects because CGI didn't exist, computers were very minimal, and so you had to adopt this method of basically using model making 
and real practical effects for the camera and then clean them up digitally a little bit as much as you could. Right. Nowadays that you have the option to just green screen everything, of course, I, I know we all kind of share this opinion that the movies that look the best and age the best are the ones where now directors who have the choice between practical effects, uh, we, usually it's a mix of practical and digital or a completely digital effect, um, you know, Christopher Nolan and Ridley Scott and um, I mean Kubrick in, in his time. But, you know, these these directors that really, really try hard to do the extra work and go through the extra expense and personnel to make these practical effects, they just age so well because they really do. Nothing, nothing looks more real than you lifting a spinner with a crane. And once you can't see the wires and there's some smoke – it looks real because it is real, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like it's not flying under its own power, but the illusion is real. Yeah, and it's so, a multi-thousand-pound dangerous object hovering right. in the air. Exactly. Yeah. So to start the scene with that really kind of um, lets you suspend. It makes it easy for you to suspend disbelief. Mm -hmm. And by the time they're switching to other size models, they made four different sized, uh, just the police spinner models. Because um, I don't think Deckard ever flies in his spinner. So when you see his, it's always on the ground, which, again, mm -hmm. is a real, it's a real car but on a real chassis. Um, so they made a 15-inch um, a version for city flybys. I think you see that in some of the first scenes where they're kind of uh, flying towards the Tyrell uh, pyramid. Yep. Uh, there's a 3.5-inch version for buzzing the precinct station. So when you see other vehicles there, there's a few landed on top of LAPD already. And those are 3.5 uh, inches. Three and a half inches. Uh -huh. Oh my there's god, that's that's like one forty third scale, right? There's a one inch tiny version um, to fill the pyramid. Oh, I'm sorry. So to fill the pyramid scene and the LAPD roof, so the ones that are already parked there, those were one inch models. So those are those are basically micro machines at that point. Exactly. <laughs> Smaller, yeah. Micro machine is probably two inch. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. Tiny. And then they have what's called um, the Hero Spinner. And again, you can find all this information. Uh, in fact, page 286 of the latest version of Future Noir has a lot of this. But the Hero Spinner, and the name comes from, I guess, in model making, the, the Hero model is the one that you use when you have several different versions of a model so that some of them are smaller and used for further out shots where the details don't need to be as good. And then some of them are for close-ups where they really need to look realistic. Well, the hero spinner spinner is the one that's going to get uh, looked at the closest. And so that's the one that they used um, in the final approach to LAPD. So that was a 45 inch, 65 pound model um, cost 50 grand to produce and had all the decals and all that. And that was built by uh, Tom pack and Bob Johnson. I'm sorry, Johnston. And, um, so, you know, that movement and the scene is kind of where it really pays off. And so they, they set this illusion through this combination of effects. And um, it's, yeah, it's just marvelous. I mean, uh, the, the, the overall uh, job that they're able to pull off is just perfect. And I, again, it's, it's just, it makes it so easy to suspend disbelief. It does. And, uh, and of course, you see the same approach in 2049 with the, this combination of miniatures and large in-camera practical effects and also digital, like this, the seamlessness of putting the time in to make sure that things look really good in a variety of applications and from a variety of angles so that, um, and at a variety of scales, so that when it all comes together, like it feels real at every single level of detail. Um, and totally. the only way to get that is to put a ton of time and, and money into it. Right. Uh, before we go yeah. too much further, so a lot people might not know this about you yet. 
Um, but Dan ha- holds thousands of lives in his hands every day. Uh, he's actually an air traffic controller. Um, and uh, as such, he has a kind of a, a unique um, sensibility when it comes to talking about spinners, and especially this one part uh, in that scene that we were just talking about. So can you, can you talk a little bit about that and tell people about it? Yeah, totally. So, yeah, so I uh, I got into air traffic control uh, in the military when I was in the Marines. I kind of got thrown into that job. And so I, I started in Southern California working with helicopters and then kind of, you know, deployed to Iraq, work with more fixed wing. And then when I got out, I got hired um, at San Francisco Tower. And I've been there for the last uh, eight and a half years or so. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, I know I know a little bit. I'm not a pilot myself, but I know a little bit about flying. And certainly I've been doing this job on and off. Well, with a, about a year and a half break for 15 years or so. And so I'm very familiar with what we call phraseology, which is uh, the specific technical language that we use on the radio, which you hear in movies all the time. And um, if you're ever curious, you can go to liveatc.net. And you can actually listen to air traffic controllers and pilots talking to Holy each shit. other. Yeah, Are it's it's public. It's publicly available. It's about a wow. fifteen second delay, so it's always there. You can pull about a month back worth of data, and uh, it has most of the major places: San Francisco Tower, L.A. Tower, some of the radar centers, etc. So you know, for aviation enthusiasts or nerds. Um, or even pilots that are trying to get more used to how controllers talk, you can go listen to that. And so, yeah, so, but in relation to 2019, uh, it was so funny that having seen this movie, you know, dozens of times, but only having seen it in the last 10 years after having done air traffic control for a while and having had that training, I noticed that uh, when the spinner, this hero spinner, which is the model, the GAFS police spinner is... uh, spinning literally and descending over uh, the police station, you actually hear real air traffic control phraseology, which blew my mind because not only did I know it was accurate, but I realized that it was like, okay, either somebody randomly on set uh, or that helped write the script knew an air traffic controller, was an air traffic controller, or more likely was a pilot. There's usually more pilots than controllers. They're really the only people that would be familiar with this level of accuracy because it would be so easy to just throw some random things in there. They didn't have to be accurate at all. And so um, I have this transcript of it, and it starts when they're taking off in Gap Spinner uh, after they leave the noodle bar, and then you'll get most of the rest of it as they're descending. And so you hear him say, uh, this is yellow three, climb and maintain 4,000 which of course are the controllers clearing the uh, aircraft or the spinner in this case to climb and then stay at the altitude of 4,000 feet, which like we use that phraseology every day in the tower. And then on landing, you can hear him say, uh, when approaching pad six, caution. And then now on glide path, on course, over the landing threshold. Now, those last two lines in particular are really cool because they're the ones that are most technical and most specific. And so in the real world, what will be happening here is uh, on final approach, so when you're down to your last kind of 2,000 feet on final, 
Um, and this will be like at a military facility. Uh, when you're landing in an airliner, you're doing an ILS approach usually. That's an instrument landing system. And so the computer is basically walking the aircraft down to the runway basically automatically. The pilot's giving inputs, but there's not a lot of talking there. The controllers aren't talking the plane down. There's a much more antiquated system that's precise and works really well. It goes back to the Vietnam era, and we still use it in the military, and it's called a PAR, Precision Approach Radar. And what the system is, and uh, I'll have to maybe we'll have to link uh, like a couple of photos of what the radar looks like because it's it's a round, old school green radar, and you have uh, two fixed sections, one on top and one on the bottom. And what the controller sees is, and it's a it has a sweep, right? So you see this little green sweep going back and forth, kind of quickly, almost like windshield wipers. Mm-hmm. And what you, what you see at the top is a uh, side view of the final approach course, which has a glide path, right, which is a like usually three and a half degrees or something. It's basically the perfect line that the aircraft is supposed to follow as it descends down to the runway. And so as the pilot goes too high or too low along that line, you would tell him um, above glide path, below glide path, on glide path. And so the pilot will correct his altitude based on what you're telling him. So you're talking right. a lot, and that's all he has is your voice to guide him into the runway. And, and at that point, the pilot's on manual control, right? Oh, yeah, totally. This is a totally manual control, but it's considered a precision approach. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have that, and then on the bottom, you have a line that's a bird's eye view. And so that, of course, tells you whether he's left or right of course, in which case you would tell him uh, right of course, left of course, on course. And so when you hear now on glide path on course, they're essentially telling Gaff that he's at the right descent, uh, you know, the right degree of, uh, of descent and he's uh, lined up properly and he's on course. So that's like and completely then, accurate jargon. Totally, that yeah, totally accurate jargon, of course. Yeah, I mean, there would be more of it if it was a real approach. And there are other technical issues with why you would be doing a precision approach to the roof of a police station, which would <laughs> not be happening. Usually. But the <laughs> right. jargon is totally accurate. Even over landing threshold is something you would tell the pilot. Right, at Landing threshold is one of the last measured points that happen before right. the pilot has to visually see the runway and actually – see the runway environment. Otherwise, if it's so unsafe that let's say they're in a cloud or in fog and they can't see the runway, they would actually have to go around. Mm -hmm. And that system in real life is accurate enough with a good controller that you can get them within 30 feet of center line on uh, a runway that's usually about 200 feet wide. So it's pretty precise for something that literally you're doing with your voice. And of course, you know, shout out to all those young military controllers who are at their first station because PAR is one of the first qualifications you usually train on, meaning that oftentimes you're like a 19-year-old kid who is literally talking a plane down to the runway in the middle of like fog or weather where if you screw up, that pilot's going to die. So it's a lot of like one of those first positions you ever train on actually has some of the most responsibility you could possibly have in your hands. But right. Anyway, before I get too nerdy about air traffic, I'm certainly passionate about it and I love my job, but I was just so impressed to see them use such a technical piece of phraseology in a scene that totally didn't need it. Even I wouldn't have gotten mad at them had they just thrown something in there that was more simple and less technical. So, right, because it, it is like a parallel universe and in the paradigm of like, you know, like vertical takeoff and landing streetcars basically. So like exactly. they could have totally gotten away with it. But exactly. the fact that so, they didn't, the fact that they chose 
to be so accurate, um, I think speaks a lot to the attention to detail. Like like we were saying before the episode started, I had never thought of the dialogue there in any right. meaningful way until you mentioned it. You know, for me, it was always kind of background noise, you know. Yeah, same, um, same with me until I, I knew, understood the job. You know, it's not something yeah. that I know before. And if any listener out there has any information on why and how got that info, whether, because I mean, obviously they didn't have the internet at the time, so it's not that easy to look up. So I'm really curious. I've never found that information anywhere. Hopefully, uh, maybe Paul Salmon has a tidbit for us when we, uh, if, if we get to interview him later, we'll yeah. find out. But well, anybody I, I knows, really hope we, uh, I hope we get more on that. I think that's, that's really interesting. And it makes you wonder what we're missing by being non-technical specialists in other things in the movie. You know, it's, like if, if this random paragraph of dialogue is like that accurate, then like you got to wonder like you know what else is that we're not even aware of because we don't work in that industry or something you know I mean, totally yeah. it's just amazing hey what you want to talk about twenty forty nine a little bit yeah um, yeah I uh, I mean that those spinners are so beautiful uh, what what did you see in terms of like differences between the twenty nineteen and twenty forty nine spinners I'll go for a ride. I mean, I think for one thing, one of the first things you noticed, um, and, and for me, like the first time that the 2049 spinner really registered was the first time I saw the trailer and they, um, it's like the love henchmen and they're breaking through the window in Deckard's, um, apartment and, uh, doing, and they're like doing that, that really quick pivot turn. And I was just like, Oh man, because it looked so real, but it yeah. was also a maneuver that you could never have seen with the old style spinner because it just like wasn't agile enough. And also they just didn't have like the ability to have what was obviously like, you know, a, a, a CG spinner back then, but the, right. the way they pulled it off just looked so amazing. So that was, that was like my first, the first time that the yeah. 2049 spinner really registered for me. And then yeah. I love how the film starts with this just incredibly glorified spinner montage, you know? I mean, it's like running on autopilot and it's just like this, in this open, beautiful environment and you're given a chance to really appreciate it for what it is. Whereas in 2019, um, you know, because of the of where all the action is taking place, and also because of the just the aesthetic of the film, you know, it's, you, you're always having to kind of like look for it. You know, it's always kind of embedded within this incredibly bleak, uh, you know, very convoluted sort of light lit and darkened um, visual landscape. Whereas in 2049, like one of the first things you see is just this like completely naked and exposed spinner, and you really can see the geometries of it. It's just so beautiful. Um, and before we get into some of the more technical notes on it, um, the sound design for the spinner in 2049, I think, is just absolutely freaking awesome. And I'm so pumped that in like 24 hours, I'm going to be talking to Mark Mangini, who was the sound designer for right. 2049. Um, he's going to be on the show. And I'm going to like really hope to talk about that because it's one of the first things you notice about the film is just when it passes over the screen, especially if you saw it in one of the Dolby cinemas with the surround sound, and it just has that that incredible sound. So um, I'm, I'm really curious about that. But um, anyway, before we go further on that, so so Dennis Gassner, the amazing production designer um, of 2049, Oscar nominated, obviously, and he's working on the next Star Wars film. 
uh, he said that the spinner was basically the first thing that he worked on uh, on the movie. So I'm going to read a little um, a little excerpt from an interview that he did with uh, the American Cinematographer uh, magazine, which is a, a, a partnership. It's part of the uh, International um, ASC Society. And he says, uh, So 2049 is a continuation of the original, but set 30 years later, so environments have changed. I always like to find a touchstone word to describe the film. So when I first met Denny, I asked him what that word was for the movie. And he thought for a second, and then he said, Brutality. And I asked him to expand on that, and he said, It's a harsher environment. The world has gotten much more demanding. In developing the architecture, it has to have that connection. The force of nature is against us, so the architecture needs to have the strength the brutality to stand up to it and then he says the first thing that we actually designed was the spinner vehicle our main character k is in it for a long time and you see it a lot we ended up developing the spinner with a lot of reference to the original film those vehicles and their graphic angles were always key hardness was a dominant factor in developing the spinner and then he says once we developed that everything else fell into place around it and we developed what i call the pattern language of the film with brutality being the optimum touchstone word some things softened slightly, but the primary goal was to be against the elements. So I think that's a great way... That's the end, of the end of the quote, by the way. I think it's a great way to explain the aesthetic of 2049 and a really great way to talk about the new spinner because it, it although it's elegant and although it's perhaps more feminine or more um, sort of graceful looking, it is very hard. It's, it's a very rigid structure. It looks like something that mm-hmm. is made out of, you know the same triangles that you would build a suspension bridge with. Like, it is a very, very hard structure. Kay's spinner looks like it could punch through a wall and, like, not be damaged at all. (laughs) Right, right, right. Uh, And and, in a Vanity Fair interview, Gassner talked a little bit about, um, in relation to the original film, some of the differences. He says, quote, The spinner of the original film has a softer quality to it. The new one is more robust, angular, chiseled, more brutal. The original spinner was supposed to be in 2019, and now we're creating the world for 2049, so you have to think about logical evolutions uh, in automobiles. And so, uh, end quote. And it made me think about uh, one of the interviews I saw with, with Denny Villeneuve, where he talks about the, uh, the, the fact that they made a conscious production design decision early on to build out the world of 2019 in the universe of Blade Runner 30 years into the future, as opposed to the world we inhabit... 30 years into the future because they could have done that and it would have felt you know to, to me it would have felt disingenuous but it, but it totally could have been pulled off you know they could have had smartphones <laughs> like they could have been using technology that looked a little bit more like what we have today because of course you know time has caught up with us and now we're basically living in the year almost where the original film takes place and so the projection outwards could have been from where we are at this point in time but the fact that they chose to set it in the universe of Blade Runner and then project that out 30 years, I think is why it looks the way it does and why it, it, it feels like it fits with the original film. And it doesn't take a lot of what you would think would be sort of predictable technical divergences from it. Um, in terms of being more reliant on automatic navigation or, um, you know, not having rubber tires. Like there are things that are very analog and very kind of deliberately antiquated about it too, that I think make it feel more in line with the original film um so we can talk a little bit about some of the morphological differences differences and feel free to cut me off um but the uh one of the first things you notice about it is that it's a tri-wheel design right it doesn't have four wheels like the like the original one does there's two in front and one in the back um and another thing that you notice early on is that it's apparently manufactured by Peugeot 
which is such an interesting company to be manufacturing this because, as was pointed out in a Jalopnik article, um, Peugeot has not manufactured a car in the United States for like 30 years. Um, and so to have this be set in Los Angeles and to have Peugeot being like the dominant spinner manufacturer is such a funny decision. But you said something when we talked about this earlier that I thought was really perceptive that um, it makes sense because there are other companies like Pan Am, like Atari, at least the Atari of the 1980s that we that we knew, not the holding company, um, and other kind of <laughs> deliberately anachronistic co- corporations that in this parallel universe have proliferated and done really well. And um, so Peugeot, in a way, at least in terms of the United States, is one of those brands. That being said, Peugeot is a very successful global car company, so it's not like, you know, necessarily the same thing. But at least vis-a-vis the United States, I totally agree with that. Well, and I will say, and I, and I showed this to Jamie last time he was over here, which is funny. Uh, so recently, because I do a lot of cooking, I wanted to get a really good uh, pepper grinder. And so I went and bought an expensive pepper, gr- pepper grinder because I use pepper all the time. I wanted it to last. I wanted it to be nice and big, kind of like the ones you have in restaurants. Yeah, and like the, the giant gear. ones where they come over and they're like, like, would you like more pepper? With yeah, pepper? I mean, I got no! like, a, and then they just do I, it for 45 minutes. Right, right. I got like a medium-sized version of that, but okay. when you look at the gears inside on the bottom, they're uh, Peugeot gears, <laughs> oh, <are they> really? <laughs> which is kind of funny. So Peugeot definitely sells plenty of things in the U.S., just not necessarily cars. Can, can, but, I, can uh, I ask, like, so so it's a pepper mill, right? Right. Is that, is that what they call it? Sure. How ballpark expensive is like a nice pepper mill? Because I just have no uh, idea. That one was fifty bucks. So I'll just okay. That's that that's about what that that makes sense. And it's plus, it's but, you know, it's made with real spinners. like metal gears that are made to last that are oh, manufactured yeah. by a car manufacturer. So you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a, a spinner manufacturer. Actually, you need to be clear about a that. spinner manufacturer. Right. Exactly. Um, one of the other things that I think is really interesting about this is something else that's revealed early on, which is the pilot fish, which I freaking love. Uh, that it has a drone attached to it that is basically like a mechanic, like a mechanical canine officer. Um, and it responds to voice and gesture commands. And you see both of those early on because he says photograph everything Kay does. And then he also does a little finger wave. So it's like, you know, it's obviously this this thing that's taking in all of this data and is able to operate with some degree of independence, like the sort of super Roomba drone, you know. Um, and, uh, and I just, I think that's such a great addition to it. And it also, it, it feels totally real like when you, when you, I don't know, you, maybe you know better than I do, but I'm not sure if that was an actual functioning drone. Um, it might have been digital. Do you know about that? That's a good question. I don't know if the yeah. pilot fish is GI or if it uh, if it's really there. I, I would suspect, just to um, throw something out there, I would suspect that the close-up scenes of it detaching from the car right. are probably made with a practical effect because, again, right. much easier to make it look real, really sells uh, the item. When it's flying around, I don't know. But at the same time, we totally have drone technology, and you can make – the outside shell of a drone, I'm sure, whatever shape you want, and then, you know, hide the propellers digitally later. So great question to ask, you know, if we, uh, if and when we interview a production design person or a prop specialist, we should definitely ask him because it could have been done. I suspect it's a mix of practical effect and digital, but I think you're probably right, which would make sense in the context of this production in general, because they do that with everything, you know? Um, Right. Speaking of which, so there were two full versions built for the film. There was one for the interior shots that showed the whole, um, you know, which we get to see quite a lot of. Like you were saying in the original film, you know, you have to use the 4K zoom technology to see the interior of it in detail. In this one, it's like, you know, we spend 
quite a bit of time in it and it's bright daylight and you can really look around and see things so they had to get that you know looking really accurate so there was one with a really fully furbished interior and then there was one for exterior shots uh and that was uh like a hanging vertical takeoff and landing flying model that was fully functioning and actually could work and uh there's an, another interview where uh he talks about that let me see if i can find that yeah he says um so Gastner said to Architectural Digest of all places, he said, I knew it was going to take an extremely long time to manufacture because it all had to be practical and very functional. It had to be kind of a working vehicle. Uh, and uh, and it was, as we know, it actually drove 50 miles per hour, this thing, uh, which is insane that it was, that it was actually so like, cool. You could take it on I, a highway. Oh, man. I wonder <laughs> if uh, Ryan Gosling ever thing? just took that thing for a joyride around the oh set. I'd be God. driving that thing at 50 miles an hour all over the place. <laughs> That'd be so cool. And then, yeah, the second one, you know, was hanging from wires for the flying sequences, you know, and then superimposed via green screen, I'm sure, on other things. Um, but I just, I love that they built a fully functioning thing. And it really, again, reminds me, you mentioned Christopher Nolan earlier, the level of attention to production, to practical production design that he has is, is very similar, in my opinion, to, to Denny Villeneuve, because... Uh, in Dark Knight, for example, like the Bat Pod was a totally functioning motorcycle that was like, you know, broke all these new, um, you know, uh, prototype designs because it was like a, like it, you know, could, could drive sideways. It was, it ran on like these incredibly high um, voltage batteries. Like it was like the real deal. Um, and even like in, in the Dark Knight, when, when the truck flips, when the Joker trip like flips the semi truck, like that was an actual semi truck that they just flipped through the air. And I just feel like it's it's the same thing with 2049. Like all of these things that would have been so easy to do digitally, they very deliberately chose not to and to build something that not only was real, but could drive 50 fucking miles per hour, which is amazing. You know, they didn't have to do that. And they didn't. I think that says a lot. Um, the last thing I want to say about 2049 spinners before we wrap this up is we get this great opportunity in 2049 to see other iterations of a spinner. So we don't just get the police spinner that we're so in love with and so used to. Um, you know, we also get Love's Ferrari kind of spinner that um, in the movie could go 175 miles per hour, which uh, which you found, and I believe that's from the this most of this is from the Heart and Soul of Blade Runner, correct? It is, yes. Yeah. So so this is all this is all in that book. Uh, that and then a mixture of websites that I can link to in the show notes. Um, but it was designed to be able to go 175 miles per hour. It, it's the sort of thing where it almost like looks like this sort of interior greenhouse where it's just very luxurious and it's very beautiful. Um, and then, you know, you see, of course, Deckard Spinner is in the film. Um, it's like barely, barely holding together and then it gets blown up. Um, and then there's the Wallace Bodyguard Spinner, which I talked about in the beginning from the trailer, which just, is just like the coolest looking thing. Um, and then there's the limousine that Deckard's transported and that gets shot down, which I just, I think is just so beautiful. Um, and it reminds me a lot of some of like the, of, of some like, like European passenger vans with this very avant-garde design like there's a Renault that I'm thinking of that looks like that um with this huge canopy and you know you can just sort of sit out and be in complete luxury um and you could see like you know Wallace Corp would have this uh kind of technology like you know where uh you know the police had these very utilitarian very durable very brutal models and Wallace Corp because they didn't need to worry about that could just have these lighter than air beautiful elegant things
one thing you mentioned earlier when we were talking about 2019 spinners and you're like, yeah, you know, they don't look like they're designed by Apple. And I, and it, you made me think about it, when, which I didn't think about this before, but when you mentioned the nine passenger limo, I was like, you know, if there's a spinner that Apple designed, it's that white nine passenger limo yes, <laughs> from that yes. scene. Like that is definitely the way Apple would make a spinner like that. Totally. Exactly. I can totally buy that. Um, oh, it's so oh, beautiful. I, I can't not mention a tiny Italian detail that is, uh, if you look at the um, the art and soul of Blade Runner book, the page where you can see Love's uh, Spinner, you can see the concept art of it. And I don't know if this made it into the actual prop vehicle, but it says uh, Gruppo Bartone Spinner on the side, which is obviously some made up uh, like Italian design group, the same way uh, Ferrari for years had, uh, you can see Pinin Farina's uh, signature on the right, side. Right. He was the famous designer, you know? Uh, so I thought that was a nice touch that they just like probably out of thin air just made up an Italian name, unless there's some guy named Bartone that like worked on the movie somewhere. But I thought well, that there, was a there, nice But there, there, is, there is a designer named Bertone. So I wonder oh, if that might be a little right. reference I'm actually to just misreading this. It is Bertone. Ah, huh. well, look at that. that that's Not what either. it is. Yeah. Uh, so that, so that's, he's a that's, current that's totally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's 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 just like it's just like Pininfarina. It's this like legendary design house where they've done that's a ton of um, amazing really cool. things for Italian manufacturers and other manufacturers as well. But that's I'm sure awesome. that yeah, that must be a uh, a reference to that. And actually, I I want I bet I bet that they consulted with Bertone. Um, on the on the on the film, I, I I would. This is another thing we have to ask some production person about at some point, because um, that it's entirely possible that they actually consulted a design house on it, and had them kind of come up with their own fantastical thing. I also so, I wonder if Pujo had anything to do with the design of the police spinner, like if if they had some sort of like internal design people come and consult on it. So that is for another episode. I, <laughs> but I think we should definitely look into it. Really? Um, yeah, yeah, we definitely need to find out. That's so many questions to ask. <laughs> I know. Well, this has been a lot of fun, man. I'm so glad we took the time to do this. Um, yeah. You know, I wanted to coming, throw in. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Before we close, let me just throw in a couple of Easter eggs that I almost forgot about. Yeah. But uh, some of the, I think the spinner from 2019, um, and you can find this on websites. And I haven't looked it up myself in these movies, but people can have fun doing this. Um, but apparently, you know, kind of a, there's sort of direct inspiration in the flying cars from uh, the fifth element. And then in the Star Wars prequels, uh, episode one and episode two have some reference to them as well in uh, as, as well as in Back to the Future 2. There's a kind of garishly painted uh, spinner like parked in someone's driveway in the future scenes, which now I'm going to have to go back and pause and, and look for it next time I see uh, Back to the Future 2. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. I mean, the spinner has become an iconic piece of science fiction, and you see it. I mean, I think in, in a, almost an embarrassingly overt way in Altered Carbon. You know, the fact that they're all flying around at these spinners—it's um, just like it's like so clearly. Uh, you know, I don't want to say a ripoff, but I also don't want to say an, an homage because because it is a little too direct for my taste. You know, you sure. see it in you, Mute. You'd have you a little it, bit of that too, right? In Mute too, exactly. Yeah, like just so many science fiction properties. You know why? I mean, it comes out of this whole idea that flying cars would be a thing someday. You know that that like that that was where we were going. Whereas now, of course, we know that that's not the, the direction that transport automotive transportation is going. The direction that it's going is a electric and b self driving. Um, you know, like ground transportation. But there was a time, right. especially in post World War II America, where every all anybody was talking about was flying cars. 
and you had entire you know magazines just full of these these ideas of what that could look like and how they would work and how they would function you had the jetsons you had you know these like that it captured in such a beautiful way this idea of freedom and prosperity you know that like not only could everybody finally afford a vacation home but everybody could fly there of their own volition in their own personal vehicle you know like the american dream is so full of this idea of like an open road and a hand at the wheel and it's like you know the future would be would be an open sky in the hand of the joystick you know um, oh yeah and, and i also think speaking of the jetsons that some of that yeah. inspiration for flying cars that came from the science fiction and general fantasy imagination of artists from the 40s and 50s the jetsons i think is from 62 but nonetheless you know between the 40s and the 60s the cars were so beautiful back then, just regular cars, mm -hmm. that of course when they drew um, flying cars, they uh, they still had those sort of beautiful old designs from the 50s kind of transformed into a futuristic vehicle. And so then they right. added whatever, like glass canopies and stuff. But it's like, um, and I think some of that uh, translates to even modern iterations of flying cars have a little bit of that 50s design to them as inspiration which is uh really beautiful yeah like you're right because they all had like tail fins you know they all, they all yeah, had tail like, fins sure and like radiate like they had um you know like full grills with chrome and everything um right. but it's because if you're designing something if you're designing something fantastical well and, and here's where i can tie this to blade runner the thinking had been if you were designing something fantastical for a fantastical future be fantastical about it, right? Like, be, be as artistically ridiculous as you want to because it's all about aspirationalism and it's all about optimism. It's all about anything can happen. And then you get Blade Runner, which tells you the future is not going to look like that. The future is actually oppressive and the future is difficult and the future is isolating. In the future, cars do fly, but they fly like they are, um, you know, horses strapped to a yoke that's choking them, you know? Like, they are really not these sort of go anywhere elegant things. They are cars that transport you to police stations, you know? Yeah. Through um, like acid rain and in right. incredible levels of smog and depression. You right, know? right. In the middle of your noodle order, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I, I just feel like that's such a beautiful legacy that Blade Runner gave us is that, um, is that science fiction, you know, earthbound science fiction um, can be, really gritty and really difficult and the production design can mirror that and of course you know we haven't even talked about sid mead in any real way but um you know he was the guy that designed it in the first place and i mean we i'm sure we will have many episodes on him um to come oh yeah but, uh, he's still doing work and art he is and we've actually emailed him before so hopefully he'll be on the show at some point yeah that would um, be incredible yeah that would be like a mind-blowing uh interview but, um, you know, like that's part of his incredible, you know, people like Sidney, people like Ron Cobb, these, these 80s, I'm not just 80s, but these guys who were creating science fiction in the 80s and doing these things that were completely unprecedented and brave and interesting and beautiful in a very dark way um, that gave us the legacy that 2049 builds on and I think takes in just as beautiful directions. And I think Gassner's work stands right up to, to the original. And I think that... Um, it bespeaks a really great future for Star Wars now that he's involved with that. And, uh, and I just think it's, it's amazing that we have this, uh, this like physical icon that represents Blade Runner in a way that people around the world, when they see it, they go, Oh, that's Blade Runner. Just like the lightsabers to Star Wars, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. Totally. And, um, 
not to make too big a point because we could definitely talk about this longer, but I know we need to close. But uh, generally speaking, too, with science fiction, uh, and this is a little bit of a philosophical point, but I, I think we'll we'll certainly talk about it more in in future episodes. But just as a teaser, um, I think that the technology that you see in science fiction that kids grow up with, you know, reading comic books and then uh, reading books about it and watching movies, and it's been going on for such a long time. You go back to Metropolis and uh, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I mean, science fiction is an old thing, um, but impossible to prove or measure i think that the sci- the contemporary science fiction or at least the science fiction that as a group sort of um you know nerdier kids end up reading um who then grow up to become scientists and engineers and doctors etc actually ends up driving and inspiring some of the technology that these really intelligent and capable people end up working on in real life and so i think in a very real way on about a 30 to 40 to 50 year time frame. Um, and you can see it, you know, I mean, there's certain things like cloning that were probably inevitable, whether they were brought up in science fiction or not. But again, some of the details of how things are done, I think, um, sometimes are driven by science fiction. Not to say that science fiction makes them happen, but to say that science fiction inspires some of those professionals in that very deep way that you can get inspired when you're a child that you kind of carry with you the rest of your life. And then when you're in a position to actually, um, you know, be an industrial engineer or whatever, you know, whether it's bridge design or cars or anything like that, I think we see a reflection of sort of our childhoods and of ourselves um, in those new technologies, whether it be uh, functional design or whether it's, you know, aesthetic uh, design and architecture. Um, and so I, I love that about science fiction, and Blade Runner is certainly a, a great example of that. So me too. And and when sci-fi works, it's best. It's it's exactly that. It's giving you a reason to look up at the stars, and a kernel of hope that you could get there yourself someday. You know, and uh, yeah, beautifully said. All right, man. Thanks. That's cool. fun. We'll uh, all we'll, right. We'll, we'll talk to you guys soon. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group. <laughs>